1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? Avoid the planter at all costs. We are under the attack of an opening probe. Notify all stations. Starfleet emergency. Red alert. Earth is on the edge of destruction. We cannot survive unless a way can be found to respond to the probe. The key to saving the future. Spock, you're talking about the end of every life on Earth. Can be found only in the past. We're going to attempt time travel. Sulu, take us home. These are the voyages of the crew of the Starship Enterprise. Judging by the pollution content of the atmosphere, I believe we have arrived at the latter half of the 20th century. Stardate, 1986. San Francisco. Our own world is waiting for us to save it. They have 24 hours. Everybody remember where we parked. Break up. To complete their mission. It looked like a cadet review. We will beam in tonight, collect the photons, and beam out. I want you all to be very careful without being discovered. We have an intruder. All right, who are you? You're not exactly catching us at our best. That much is certain. This is an extremely primitive and paranoid culture. What does it mean, exact change? Many of their customs will doubtless take us by surprise. We're ready for beam out. My transporter power is down to minimal. I've got to bring in one at a time. You're from outer space. No, I'm from Iowa. I only work in outer space. Let's do our job and get out of here. Freeze! Take off, can you hear me? Freeze! I've lost it. Who are you? You can't. Our next stop is the 23rd century. Full power now, sir. Shields at maximum. Steady. Hold on tight, lassie. Can we make breakaway speed? That's all I can give you. Book eight. Book nine. Now. Star Trek Four: The Voyage Home. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spitaro, and I have a new guest with me today, Mr. Ron Randall, uh, who you may or may not be familiar with as the artist, writer, creator of Trekker, 
Uh, welcome aboard, Ron. Thanks very much, Paul. It's great to be with you. And I, I'm, I'm giving you kind of the short shrift by just mentioning Trekker, because even when I <laughs> look things up, I mean, you have a, uh, a, a much more uh, expanded history than that. Uh, you, you want to give like just a quick background for uh, anybody listening? Uh, sure. I uh, um, I started comics way back uh, in the, the early 1980s. I had gone to the Joe Kubert School uh, and made my inroads first at DC uh, on some backups, uh, a miniseries called uh, The Conqueror of the Barren Earth. And then I went on to draw books like uh, Arak, Warlord, <laughs> uh, Justice League Europe I worked on, uh, done some work for Marvel, uh, a Venom miniseries, things like that. And uh, for Dark Horse, I worked on the first Predator, uh, three miniseries that they put out, as well as creating uh, my own book tracker. So um, I've been around, a lot of skeletons in the closet, as they say. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I saw in your biography, uh, not only did you go to the Kubert School, but you actually uh, worked with Kubert on Sergeant Rock. Is that right? Yeah, that is the way the way I don't want to take too much time on this if you don't want to. But it's um, when I went there, the school uh, was in its earliest days. I was uh, in the second graduating class. It was only a two year program when I went. But what Joe did, because he was, you know, he was there and running this running the school and teaching some of the classes. And for the graduating students, he would sort of um, sort of pick out the um, the ones that seemed like they were the most serious about getting into comics as opposed to other, you know, aspects of commercial art or whatever. And he would sort of handpick us and give us these very short two, three, five-page backup stories in the Sergeant Rock comic book that he was editing then. So he could sort of do what he wanted to with it. And uh, the way we would work on that was we'd take these scripts home, work on our little thumbnails, call up Joe, <laughs> go to his house and his studio and um, show him our work. And he would one on one, you know, just one at a time. I would be there alone in Joe Kubert's studio, sitting at his drawing board with him as he was picking apart my thumbnails and pointing out so many better solutions I could have made for all these problems. And then we'd repeat that process at the penciling stage and at the inking stage. It was the most. So that was really my third year, really. Uh, my, my finishing school was working uh, side by side with Joe on these backup stories. And then that eventually folded into I got to um, on uh, an issue or two help Joe out with with the lead feature of the Sergeant Rock book, which was a great honor and incredibly intimidating, but also was very safe because. Joe would go back over and fix my most glaring mistakes. <laughs> it must have been an amazing experience. Well, it, it was one of those things that at the time, I mean, I knew it was pretty cool, but I was a young man. And it's one of those experiences that, that, that you can have in life where even when you think you're appreciating it in the moment, it's not until years later that you say that you can really understand the magnitude, you know, and how, mm -hmm. and how, how great an opportunity it was. I did everything I could to take advantage of it. Uh, and I'm really glad I did. And still, I look back and I, I sort of shake my head that it happened. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, Joe Kubert is always one that, uh, I, I, you know, sometimes I have a tough time separating respect from nostalgia mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to certain comic book things. But I think Joe Kubert, I kind of have both. Uh, yeah. I, I, I mm -hmm. love looking at his artwork, but also I have these memories of having some of his issues as a you know as a very very young reader you know issues of tarzan issues of sergeant rock things like that oh yeah yeah uh, and just just eating it up you know uh <laughs> so it's it's very hard to separate the two but i think this is one case where you don't need to separate the two in my opinion one and the same 
Yeah, I, I agree a hundred percent. Those, those, uh, you know, what he did on Sergeant Rock. Um, well, it was just, I mean, it was just, you know, there, there was nothing like it in comics. It was so emotional and so, you know, in some ways it was sort of, you know, sort of feral and primitive with the, the sort of the way he rendered it, but, but, but also incredibly sophisticated at the same time. It wasn't crude at all. It was just very, it was like he was clawing the art into the pages and all that. That passion came across there. Yeah, I was, then, I was call his style like a feathery style. The way he yeah, he had it. a lot of feathery work there, but it wasn't the sort of. Some people do a feathery thing like um, like a Bernie Wrightson, where it's very, or, or Dave Stevens, where it's lush and smooth and, and lustrous. Joe's feathering, there was more tooth and texture to it, the way I always felt about it. It was rougher around the edges, which just made it have that much more energy and grit to it. It also fit, um, fit the subject matter that he was yeah, doing. Yeah, exactly. Sergeant Rock, and then and then when he went on to do Tarzan, you know, he he it's my favorite, you know, um, depiction of Tarzan of all is Joe's, which he would he would hate me for saying that because he he revered Hal Foster so much, but um, what Joe did on those DC Tarzan books that's that was the that's that's my favorite of his work is the Tarzan stuff because of that, like you said, his 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 art style that that rugged feathering they did was so good to convey those textures of the forest and the you know the lions and and of course the great apes and and the musculature on tarzan himself it just it was just like a perfect fit and uh and then they get to meet the man and go to his school and get to know him and get to work with him like i said sometimes i still just shake my head (laughs) yeah and I, I, I could probably sit here. I, I, in fact, I'm very confident. I don't think probably enters into it. I could sit here all night talking to you about comic books and art styles. Uh, and we've already kind of, before we started this episode, had a discussion about seeing if we might be able to work out to get you on an episode of Back to the Bins in the not-too-distant future. So I would sure. tell everybody who's enjoying our very very abbreviated conversation about comic books to uh, wait for that because uh, I think there's going to be a lot more to come. Uh, but let's do we could move, well I, before we move on to the movie that we're here to talk about I do understand that you have a Kickstarter and I'd like to give you an opportunity to just let any listeners know about that before we start oh thanks very much yeah um, so the um, the Kickstarter that I'm running uh, runs from uh, January 21st through February 20th and it's for my my science fiction bounty hunter Mercy Saint Clair the comic is called Trekker uh, it's a series that I created many years ago at Dark Horse. Uh, recently, I've turned to Kickstarter, and I've been telling new stories um, that I've been putting out as uh, trade paperbacks. Uh, but for this Kickstarter, I'm going back taking all the earlier stuff that I did originally through Dark Horse, which is now currently all out of print. Uh, many of it uh, were stories that I created back in the black and white days, and so these comics have never been in color before. So now I've just finished recoloring all those and all this content, 470 pages of Trekker material, uh, I'm running a Kickstarter to to put out a big fancy hardcover to get all that stuff back into print and out in sort of like the um, you know like an ultimate or a deluxe sort of format. Very excited about it. That sounds great. And uh, anybody who uh, before the last thing before we get onto the movie is uh, if somebody's interested in that, what website should they go to? Um, you can just type in TrekkerKickstarter.com. That should link you right to the live campaign. Great. And uh, I'm, I'm going to recommend that people do that very thing because uh, I'm kind of excited about this. And I think I'm going to be signing into it very shortly after we finish recording. Fantastic. <laughs> so, but uh, now Trekker, and, and it's funny because I, I looked at the Wikipedia page. They have to specifically make a point of saying it has nothing to do with Star Trek, <laughs> uh, yeah, which, which, is, which is obvious, especially once you described what it is. Uh, but we're here to talk about Star Trek anyway. 
Right. <laughs> and that was that was Ron's suggestion because we were talking about a different movie and we just decided that one will sit on the back burner for a little while. Uh, but for now, we're gonna we're here to take a look at Star Trek IV: The Voyage Home from 1986. Uh, now I, I'm gonna come right out and tell you, Ron, they can't make a Star Trek movie that I won't like. <laughs> uh, I, I can I can sit here and I can tell you objectively, yes, this doesn't work, or mm-hmm. I believe this is a guilty pleasure because I don't think it's a good movie, but I'm pretty much <laughs> going to like any Star Trek movie. Uh, so you 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 know when you when you mentioned this one, you you were going to have a tough time coming up with a, a Star Trek thing that uh that I was going to have any kind of problem. Uh, <laughs> So let me ask you to start off. What's your background with Star Trek in general? Uh, well, when I, I, I was when I was a wee lad, they uh, they they aired the, the the TV series and the original series, um, and I had already I had already discovered a, 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 a nascent love for science fiction. I'm not sure exactly where um, uh, Johnny Quest or reading comic books, you know. But, um, but uh, when I heard there was going to be a television show of science fiction i was very excited and i i saw it and immediately fell in love with those with those shows um some of it was the science fiction concepts you know in in, in those in in the first couple of seasons of the the original series and a lot of it of course is that dynamic between kirk spock and mccoy you know that's a great that's a great trilogy right there characters um so as a kid i had great affection for that stuff and um uh, then uh, you know didn't last very long. The the, the series not my affection. That's that's been there to this day. Um, and then when they when the, when they uh, brought back the you know the next generation and stuff, I was on there for that. So um, um, yeah, I've, I've I've been with it since the beginning. Uh, parenthetically, I'll quickly mention the the thing about Trekker. When I came up with Trekker, Star Trek had been off the air for like twenty years, mm. <laughs> and. Um, uh, I was, uh, it's a long story, but basically I, I was asked to come up with a, a dream project for a comic book and I wanted a science fiction thing. I thought a bounty hunter would be cool and a woman in a bounty hunting role would be a cool idea. Um, and I thought the word Trekker would be a great name for the character. It's what they call bounty hunters there. And I thought, well, there is Star Trek, but nobody's doing anything with Star Trek right now. So the word should be safe to use. And then they announced next generation right after I created this series. <laughs> so the timing, I was a victim of the timing, but I'd already, you know, fallen in love with the title and was committed to it. So there's, there's that thing. Um, so I had a long, a long term relationship with uh, science fiction in general and with Star, and Star Trek in specific. My, my Star Trek background's a little different because I was kind of young when the series was actually being aired. Uh, so I don't really have any specific memory of seeing first run episodes of Trek. Mm-hmm. But as a, uh, you know, as, as an adolescent, uh, Star Trek was airing on Channel 11 in New York virtually three times a night, I think. Uh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was exposed to it then, and I had an enjoyment of it. I can't even say I had a love of it at that point. Uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture came out, and I saw it, and I enjoyed it. Uh, and then Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan came out, and all of a sudden it was like a, a switch got flipped. Yeah. <laughs> and I just became a rabid fan <laughs> at that point. Well, I, I couldn't I, consume I can, enough of it. Yeah, I can certainly understand how that would be, yeah. So by the time this movie came out, I was heavily into it. Uh, and I, you know, as I'm, I'm guessing you saw it in the theater as well as I did. Yes. Yeah, I did. Okay. And, uh, I'm going to tell you my first thought thoughts 
when I saw this, and I am a, it, it kind of goes to what we were talking about before we started recording. I am very against who are uh, essentially like internet bullies, would be before the day. Uh, I'm also against people who are gatekeepers of fandom. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a fan of Star Trek, so you can't be a fan. Uh, right, that kind yeah. of thing. Uh, You're not the right kind of fan or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, it's to me, being a fan means you like something. Mm-hmm. Then we can talk degrees of fandom. You could be a manic <laughs> fan or you could be a casual. Right. Uh, but if you're a fan, it means you like it, and that's that's good enough for me. And yet, I have some guilt, because I knew when I saw this that it was going to appeal to a non-science fiction audience because of the humor in it and the earnestness in parts of the... And I found that to be bothersome. And I, I <laughs> like I said, I carry some guilt with me over that, because I don't like gatekeepers. <laughs> but but you're saying, but though you were being one yourself? Yes. <laughs> oh, wow, that's what an interesting dilemma to be in. <laughs> So I mean, I, I and and it's funny because I went through years and years of people, you know, when I when I would come across people who were not Trek fans, mm-hmm. who would express any type of interest in seeing it, this would be the first thing that would come to mind. Let me let them watch this because mm-hmm. if they watch this and they don't like it, then they're yeah. not going to like anything else. <laughs> but if as a as a casual non science fiction fan, if you watch this, maybe you're going to get pulled in and want to see more. I think that's a great um, uh, that was a great uh, awareness you had and a great recognition that that there were there were elements in in uh, in this movie that are, as you said, you know, they're, they're just um, that could broaden the audience and go beyond the, the regular sort of the, the standard checklist of ingredients that you would have in in a lot of, you know, science fiction movies and action movies and Star Trek movies in particular, because there are things in this movie that are that do stretch that and. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Could appeal to a wider audience. Did, did you have much of that experience? Were you were you able to get some people, you know, roped in because of this movie? I would say yeah. Over the years, there's been a few that I were. Uh, just just to, to elaborate a little on that gatekeeper thought, uh, I remember seeing the movie with a good friend of mine, and as we were leaving the movie theater in the car driving to wherever it was 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 that we were going there, we were talking about it, and we we were like saying, you know what, I don't want to hear all these people who don't really like Star Trek telling me about the nuclear vessels. <laughs> like that was I remember specifically having that conversation. <laughs> that's funny, yeah. Because that's the humor of it, isn't it? That's part of the part of the attraction to this one. Yes, definitely. It's it's the, the fish out of water aspect of it I think makes it appeal to non science fiction. Uh, right. You know, yeah. the same kind of thing that you'd see in Back to the Future or Big or mm-hmm. you know, any other movie like that where it's somebody who doesn't belong in a certain situation, who finds themselves there and doesn't know exactly how to deal with the, the tropes and the uh, customs and that type of thing. Right, yeah. Um, maybe something like uh, the movie Splash, which you could say, well, it's a movie about a mermaid, so it's a fantasy movie. But it's really, it's just a comedy, isn't it? It's a, rom- it's a romantic comedy. Literally and everybody a fish can out be- of water. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. And in Star Trek Four, there, you know, there's there there are the science fiction sort of elements to it, but it's basically not quite a, a slapstick comedy. But there's there's a there's a lot of funny business going on, and they're just trying to solve this dilemma, which a lot of people can relate to in one way or another. So it's um it's not really much of a science fiction movie in in, in the way that I think at least I usually think of when i think about science fiction movies there's not a lot of spaceships flying around and blasters and explosions and you know creepy aliens and and all that sort of stuff it's people running around in san francisco trying to solve a dilemma (laughs) yeah i mean the the time travel aspect of it adds the science fiction premise to uh yeah exactly but but that's really it yeah Yeah, there's some science fiction premise stuff um but yeah exactly and it's funny after um i picked this movie uh 
then I remembered, oh, yeah, this one has time travel in it. And generally speaking, Paul, I am not a fan of time travel stories. And usually even in Star Trek, the, when, when time travel is used, I just I just uh, I just sort of have to suspend my disbelief and my critical thought process, because when I try to figure out logically how it could work and all the contradictions of time stream stuff, I just I, I just throw up my hands in exasperation saying this is just not. You know, this is it is not this does not hold any water. But uh, but if the movie's good enough, uh, it's like if a comic or any story is good enough. Meaning, I, if I find the characters compelling and they're compelling situations and stuff, I will forgive a certain amount of those um, whatever you want to call it sins or uh, just um, uh, co- you know maybe complicated things with some plot. Well, just uh, from just, you know uh, from a time travel uh, conundrum point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, if you eliminate the thought of the uh, butterfly effect that even the slightest action could create ramifications down the road, if you, right. if you kind of eliminate your thoughts about that, the only significant event in this movie that I can think of uh, that could have ramifications in the future is the providing the uh, formula for transparent aluminum in 1986. <laughs> Which they do in the most cavalier fashion imaginable. Yeah, how do we know this guy didn't invent <laughs> yeah, it? Well, how do you know he did? Why don't you look it up? You got, you got your tricorder over there. Go look it up. <laughs> That's right, exactly. So, yeah, there's there's that. And I thought I thought there was one other that I, that I thought about too. But yeah, basically, there, there's one or two places where we say, Wait a minute! This could be making a huge ripple. Well, and when um when the when, when the doctor uh, Jillian Taylor when she goes into the future with them, you know they've they, they've they've addressed that issue in even in other Star Trek shows. Well, this person is from this time period. If they all of a sudden leave now, then they're not here to help that old lady cross the street four years from now, or get married and have this baby, or right. invent this, or do that. So um, there's a few places where. You just have to say, okay, it's time travel. You you either have to accept it <laughs> with some of those um, uh, those contradictions, or or you just have to not. And and, and I guess uh, you you could explain. I'm just like you know spitballing here with you a little bit. Uh-huh. Uh, I guess you could explain that away possibly by if they did like if they were looking at their uh, computers and seeing what the history showed or whatever, and he looks it up and he says, you know what, it turns out this guy is the guy who invented transparent aluminum. You know, so I'm not doing something I should. Uh, right. and, and when I looked up Jillian Taylor, it said uh, she disappeared in 1986. Yeah, so all we're doing is fulfilling history or, or, or making sure that it goes unfolds the way it's supposed to. You're yeah. Right. yeah. It, as it turns out, this was the way it was supposed to be. So I yeah. don't know if that, that holds water or not, but it, <laughs> it may be oversimplifying it. Like uh, I say, with a, with a movie that, that I enjoy as much as this one, I'm, I, I'm, I'm willing to take any any reasonable, graceful out they can get. So I'm, I'm there with you on that. But I, this is one of the things about time travel. It just It just invites these sort of questions, which sometimes or quite often I will find somewhat distracting in any less so in this movie because like i said that's really just almost like the just some background material to sell to set up this fun and compelling adventure but uh other times i'll think when they really try to address the whole thing about the time travel um i, I just find it it, it sort of distracts me enough because i these sort of troubling questions pop up and stay in my mind uh whereas with this movie since it's not very central to you know the goings on, at least it doesn't feel that way to me. I was able to just accept this as a fun adventure with a lot of really great writing, a lot of great character stuff going on, and uh, uh, and some some good fun different ideas too. So, so I, I as as I watched this again for the I don't even know how many times I've seen it, but I watched it 
in particular for the purposes of talking to you today. And as I went, I, I just scribbled some notes. And so they, they're kind of in chronological order as the movie goes along. But I'm just going to hit on some of the things that I, I made note of and just get your thoughts on them. Uh, first thing, as the credits were rolling, I was I was listening to the score. Uh, mm-hmm. And my understanding is uh, Leonard Rosenman, who did the score, to the, uh, Leonard Nimoy wanted to use him in The Search for Spock and vetoed. But after the search for Spock, he had done well enough that he, you know, he kind of had a little bit more uh, power to dictate things that he wanted to do, uh, mm-hmm. and he got his his guy in there. And I've heard a lot of criticism of the score of this because, for the most part, it's not very science fictiony. Uh, <laughs> but my thoughts were really that it kind of fits the story because, as we were talking about, this isn't really a very science fictiony story. Right. Uh, I, I feel like the the music. The musical score is kind of upbeat throughout mm-hmm. it for the most part. Uh, and, and sometimes, you know, obviously so. It, it, like it stands out as very upbeat in certain moments. Uh, but I felt like it, it very much fit the tone that Nimoy was trying to set for the movie and that the scripts. So I really don't have a problem with it, although I've heard a lot of criticism. Well, I, I, I agree with you 100%. Um, I, I know that um, that Nimoy w- was definitely... When I watched the movie, I hadn't heard this before, but when I, when I was watching the movie uh, to get ready for this uh, the, our talk, um, the thing that struck me that I hadn't really paid attention to when I'd seen it earlier was there isn't a bad guy in this movie. There, you know, Nobody's shooting lasers at each other. Nobody's throwing punches. Um, th- you know, th- there isn't an evil uh, antagonist to to come to grips with. Um, and uh, Nemo wanted to, you know, uh, that was very intentional. I mean, there's there's the um, there's the the alien probe that sort of comes and causes problems, but they're not there to do that. They're not, you know, there's um, never any thought that that alien probe intends to do damage. Exactly. Uh, yeah. It's more like that's and, just happening on my chance. Right. And I, I, I don't. And then I found out later, you know, that uh, in reading uh, that that uh, this is very intentional on, on Nemo's part. And uh, I don't know if this is the case or not, but you know, with the wrath of Khan, you had this sort of <laughs> this sort of operatic, you know, strong and wrong, and there's there's uh, death and destruction, and and it's kind of dark and and all that sort of. Um, Grim stuff, which is which is great. It's it's a great movie in its own right. And Search for Spock has its um, sort of uh, its particular tone as well. But I think he was intentionally wanting to shift gears and expand things, like you were saying here, and and getting a soundtrack that would feel more um, conventionally science fictiony. I think you're right. It would just would have cut completely against his intention. Um, so I, I'm with you 100 percent on that. And you know, it's, it's interesting. My next note uh, would go to. I guess the closest thing we have to a bad guy, and he's not a bad guy from a villainous, uh, you know, mustache twirling point of view, more of a political bad guy, uh, the Klingon who's trying to get, you know, what he believes to be justice. Uh, and he's portrayed, I found it kind of amusing that they cast John Shuck in the role. Uh, John Shuck, to me, the most, the most famous role he had was in a TV show called Holmes and Yo-Yo. Uh, so, uh, you know, he, he, he isn't exactly a, uh, he, he was a, a, a familiar face, mm. but he was not exactly, you know, somebody who was known for his science fiction playing, at least to my knowledge. Yeah. And I think a lot of people wind up getting, getting roles in Star Trek in one or another for, for lots of reasons. They come from lots of different <laughs> walks, you know, uh, 
professional basketball players have been Klingons, and <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and in in, in, uh, in the voyage home, um, uh, Jane Weedman from uh, the Go Go's has a has a little cameo role there. So, and, and just and these people pretty much they have this they say the same thing. I just would do anything to be in a Star Trek show because I love I love Star Trek so much. Uh, I think the one that stands out the most is Christian Slater in Star Trek Six. There you go. Yeah, yeah. The little cameo um, that did. Yeah. So either they they have a well they they have a passion for Star Trek and probably have a good agent yeah. you know, who's who's able to who's able to take a meeting or or a phone call you know get a phone call through at the right time. <laughs> so I, I noticed uh, you know while he's on they're showing footage from uh, special basically the best special effects footage that they had from Star Trek two and Star Trek three which is the Genesis effect on the planet that animation mm-hmm. now so this is the third movie that that's appearing in uh, yeah. and the explosion of the enterprise in star trek 3 which is still to me one of the most spectacular things they've ever done i just love that shot uh, and they yeah, managed to yeah. reuse them in this which I, I just felt like it was you know it's almost like oh we, we can do this and we could save money but it's also to me it's like oh I, you know what i want to see him again and just keep showing him to me it's fine <laughs> right yeah and you know in fact, when I was watching this movie, I hadn't seen any of the the, the movies, those 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 early Star Trek movies, in a number of years. And so, watching um, Voyage Home, uh, sort of cold as it were, I was really struck with the fact that what happens in Rathacon and Sister Spock. That's that's what happens in Voyage Home. A lot of the that backstory is so so um, has so much of an impact on things. The dynamic with you know Spock. Sort of coming back to being himself, and and the dilemma why they're why they're outcasts and and uh, you know um, um, stranded there on Vulcan and stuff. That so they needed to they did need to very quickly and efficiently set that stuff up so they could get onto the story within the context of the series. Um, and and I thought that w- was a brilliant way to do it. And and as you say, that footage is just breathtaking. So. Why not? Uh, especially since it's really, you know, as we're saying, about the only real high science fiction sort of visual you have in the show <laughs> is right there at the beginning. So, uh, so you get that stuff set up. But then you get on to the story about whales. <laughs> well, and then uh, I'm going to actually jump ahead to one of the notes that I have because, you know, we're talking about the special effects and, you know, the, the heady shots and everything. Uh, the one that they, in my opinion, tried to do and kind of failed uh, is the special effects shot when they're traveling through time and we see the giant busts of their heads oh i'm uh, so glad you're bringing this up it, it did not work for me. <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> it didn't convey I, time travel uh no i, I just it, I, I don't know exactly what they were thinking clearly they had some high-minded thoughts about it i just don't think it yeah i agree with you 100 um uh uh and funnily enough or maybe uh, tellingly enough I had totally forgotten that that was there until I was watching it again. And I just said, oh, yeah, this scene. I didn't understand it back when the movie was first filmed in theaters, and I still don't understand what they're exactly trying to say. Something vaguely about time, but, man, it just seems like there is about 500 better ways you could do that that would have been more visually arresting and conveyed the concept just a lot better for us. So, um I don't know. You know, every once in a while, when I when I see some some older science fiction movies, they sometimes do take it. Um, sometimes they're taken to to try to do some of that sort of high minded, high concept sort of stuff, like you were just saying. And um, that's very very tricky to pull off, especially when you're working in a 
in a show or a series like Star Trek where so much of it is about very grounded human sort of interactions. And if all of a sudden you're also trying to deal with these high concepts with symbolism and stuff going on, boy, it's really tough to, it's really tough to connect dots that are that far apart on the field. If, if that analogy makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. And I, I think I would have been more happy with seeing, uh, a special effect similar to what we see towards the end of 2001, A Space Odyssey. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, that would have conveyed the time travel aspect much better than what we yeah. got. And it probably wouldn't have even been as expensive for them to do. <laughs> it probably uh, wouldn't have. Yeah. But, you know, just the same, you know, this is what we got. And it's it's a minor, to me, it's a nitpick. It's not, you know, because it's not a significant part of the movie. It's a significant part of the story that they travel through time. But mm-hmm. it isn't a significant part to see what they're experiencing as they travel yeah, oh, I, yeah, again, I agree 100%. Uh, uh, sometimes the special effects in a movie are great, and sometimes they're not great. And if it's a good movie, it, it doesn't matter all that much. I mean, when you get something like the explosion of the Enterprise, like you were just saying, it's a wowzer moment, and it really helps. But if that was the only thing that that movie had had going for it, that would not have been a movie that worked for me. Uh, you know, I, I don't go to a movie generally <laughs> – just uh, just to have a story that's an excuse for having cool special effects. I want the story to be about characters. I, I you know I'm I'm a character driven kind of guy, and Star Trek works for me because you know, I love a lot of the trappings about science fiction. But I want to know what's going on with Spock and Kirk and you know the the, the the cast and what paces are they going through? What are they learning? What experiences are they having? And that sort of stuff. So yeah, so uh, a few mysterious sculptures coming up and down through the time travel sequence. That's a very small part of the movie. I can shrug that off. <laughs> yeah, same, same here. And it's yet another nitpick. But at least I'm just going through my notes that I that I came up with <laughs> as I was watching it here. Another nitpick is uh, when they're on Vulcan and you have, I guess it's the Vulcan flight crew working on the Klingon bird of prey. Mm-hmm. Uh, what exactly are they wearing on their heads? They kind of look like they could be maybe a little phallic if you're looking at it that way, or or they could be like Smurf hats. I, I really don't understand the 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 purpose of them and it's just like i said it's i know it's a nitpick but it's just something that jumped out at me and i was thinking huh what the heck is that about yeah no i i, I got nothing for you wish i wish i had wish i had a uh, a clever way to 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 rationalize or explain that yeah but, uh, just, oh no they need that because whatever <laughs> you know yeah exactly it's a culturally blah blah no i don't <laughs> <laughs> so to get to get a little bit more into the character moment mm-hmm. uh we we cut to a scene where Spock is effectively testing his intellect, uh, mm-hmm. and he's he's going through it's a question, you know, bang bang bang, he's getting them right, you know, correct, 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 right. And then the computer says, "How do you feel?" And it stopped. Yeah. And I I really kind of thought that that was a big moment uh, from just from a character development. I know you know Leonard Nimoy not only directed this, but he he was very heavily involved in the writing in this particular mm-hmm. movie, uh, and he is very or was uh, you know he is no longer with us gently, mm-hmm. but he was very protective of his character of Spock mm-hmm. uh, and wa- always wanted him to be portrayed the correct way. And what we did get was we got a progression of him emotionally in Star Trek, the motion picture. And then again in Star Trek two. And now all of a sudden, because in Star Trek three, his mind and body are being reconnected. He's lost the grasp. I don't think he's lost the emotional growth, but I think he's lost the grasp. Of yes. Uh, yeah. And he's being totally thrown off. Like, I don't understand the question. What do you mean? How do I feel? And his mom comes in, Amanda, played by Jane White, wonderful, uh, and has a, a conversation, you know, a heart to heart with him about it. And I really thought this was a terrific moment because not only are we getting 
into Spock's growth and his character and, you know, making him once again a three-dimensional character. But we're also showing a relationship with him and his mom that we really hadn't had too much of at this point because everything we had in the past had focused on him and Sarek. So it was nice to see, you know, his mom had to have had a big influence. And up until this point, we really hadn't seen too much of. Yeah, it's it's a great it's a great moment. And um, it's hard to imagine. It's so beautifully acted and so well written that that scene. It's really hard to imagine anybody watching that movie and not and not just having a strong connection with Spock and what he's going through and what his mom is going through. Because, you know, a, a lot of what I think that scene drives home is what, like you said, it's not that Spock has sort of lost all that growth that he's had, but it's misplaced and it needs to be reclaimed. And um, that sense of what isn't, what is missing that, you know, from what, from, from those, those evolutionary growth steps he'd <laughs> taken in the previous movies, that's, it's very poignant. Um, and and of course, as always, he just plays it with such great restraint. That's what make to me. That's what makes Spock work as a character is Nimoy's restrained acting um, and letting that all be under the surface, so we can. It's almost like we feel it without seeing it. Usually, yeah. Um, and uh, that happens throughout this movie and lots of little scenes where there's there's genuine warmth being beamed at him, which he receives sort of quizzically. <laughs> But I, I think, I think Leonard Nimoy but, always understood and always portrayed in his acting the reality of the science fiction that it's not that Vulcans don't have even mm-hmm. They've just learned to control and repress their emotions, but they are there. Yes. And I yeah. think he's always shown that in his performance, whereas some other people who've portrayed Vulcans have not. Right. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly that's what makes him so, you know, I guess you'd say pretty much unique <laughs> of the people that play those characters. So um, those characters meaning Vulcans, but yeah, uh, that's, it's just, uh, it, it was a miracle of, of casting and <laughs> talent coinciding with, with the creation of a character that, that gave us something uh, that we have in our, uh, in our current mythology, like a character like Spock. So then, you know, we, we, before we leave uh, Vulcan, uh, we have a moment with uh, Savick, Mm-hmm. who was played by Robin Curtis once again. She came in in Star Trek III. Uh, I was never happy with the fact that they replaced Kirstie Alley because I did actually like her better in the role. I, I felt mm-hmm. like Robin Curtis did exactly what I said. She portrayed Savick as if, whereas mm-hmm. I think Kirstie Alley kind of, I, I, I don't know if she got it from Nimoy or if she, it was her own characterization, but it always seemed to me like her version of Savick had emotion. But I think in, that's a really good call, yeah. In fact, I don't think she repressed it as well as Spock did. Like I think, you know, I mean, I think she she kind of failed on that on that level to some extent and might be criticized by some Vulcan elders if they were there to see certain emotions that she would let loose. Uh, But I but I always thought felt that that was part of her acting style in it. And I always thought it was well done. Whereas, again, Robin Curtis, I felt she was kind of wooden in how she. Yeah, I mean, as as an actor, that's it's 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 a very it's a very tricky thing to try to pull off. And uh yeah, that'd be an easy trap to fall into because you don't want to over emote. Um, but but some actors just be, because of their whatever their temperament or their their approach to the craft, I guess. Um, like Christiali, I think she had that sense of. Uh, and some of the most compelling characters or actors to watch are the ones where you sense that there's this volatility, that that emotion there. They're sort of struggling to keep things battened down. But if the right thing or if the wrong thing happens, there could be an explosion. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes you feel that there's this, there's a lot of bottled up energy there. And uh, it just sort of 
can energize any scene that those characters are in. Um, and, and not every actor, that's not every actor's style or, or strength. It's not the only way to be a good actor, but, but if you have someone who has that, you can really, um, you can really build a lot of scenes and stories around somebody like that. Now, what do you think about the not very well kept secret that he did plan on having Savick pregnant with Spock's child after the events of Star Trek three, and that there was a scene which I don't think I've ever seen actually, but there was a scene that they filmed where they kind of addressed that with Vulcan. Yeah, I'd only found out about this recently because I'm not the sort of person who does a lot of that digging into these sort of things, and I, um, I was sort of like, eh, I. I I, I I like the movie and the the the, the storylines of these characters as is. Um, you know I I I, I don't think it, I don't think it would have added anything to the story as it is. You know, just taking it on on the face of it like that. But that said, um, it would it would really depend on how how they developed it. I could you know I I, do, I would try to have an open mind. <laughs> and if they did good things with it and got good character um, you know good character moments and and character development out of it. I, um, then, then more power to him, I guess. How, how about you? Do you were you like what, or do you think, oh, that would have been cool? I, uh. Uh, no, I, I, I think my my take on it was similar to your own, where I wouldn't have automatically been dismissive of it, mm-hmm. but I do think it would have been difficult to do it right. That doesn't mean they couldn't, and maybe they yeah. would have, and it would have been fine. Uh, you know, I think sometimes when when you add children, uh, it almost has this sitcom sense of desperation we, we have to add this in here because we don't know where to go with these characters yeah I uh, think and that's, that's when it fails mm-hmm. but then every once in a while it's happened uh i can think of uh in comic books when they added damian wayne i was mm-hmm. initially dismissive of it but i thought that they did a real nice job with that character and with the characterization and the relationship with Bruce Wayne and the relationship with alfred and the relationship with dick grayson uh that i really enjoyed that they added that character so sometimes they can do it right and sometimes you have cousin oliver from the brady bunch <laughs> exactly my, my guess is what happened was they 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 looked at that idea that you know someone had, had germinated and come up with and they they tried to develop it and i assume that the reason that scene that that was cut out of the the story was they said you know what that could be an interesting idea but we don't really know how we would do it or how we would make appropriate room for it in this story um so better to better to keep the story clean and go as it is uh you don't need to explore every single potential uh story idea within the confines of one movie um you know i don't know i'm sure you've had the experience of going to a movie and it just feels like they're just throwing every single idea that they have into this movie and it loses focus and and dramatic thrust and everything because they're they're just too in love with each and every single one of their ideas even the ones that are only half baked uh so i i'm i myself am feeling just fine with the movie as it is and kind of grateful that they made what i think was the right the right judgment call for this <laughs> i think they did if, if my memory serves me and i've never read it but i do think they came out with a star trek novel that may or may not be considered to be canon where they mm-hmm. developed that story further uh, but I've never i wouldn't read be surprised it, so. yeah I, I wouldn't be surprised because you can you know on first blush you can say oh well if that happened then Look at what we could do as far as exploring the emotions of this person and that character and what these dynamics would do. It might be kind of fun to play with it, but 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 is it uh, does it really contribute to the story of this movie, or does it 
like you said, it's like when you when you introduce a character, it's like it's like actors say on stage, you don't want to be on stage with children or animals because they will always upstage you. It just the, the story is just it just weighed in a certain direction when you have these things on there, and if you don't know how to do it well, um, you're you're going to wind up just uh, you're going things are going to seem lopsided and out of place. So I think it probably would have called too much attention to itself. I, I pretty much agree with you there. Certainly yeah. for the purposes of this movie, it was not necessary. Right. Uh, but, and I know I'm taking us off track a little bit off of this movie. Uh, <laughs> but I, you know, as we discuss this, I think of the possibilities of if they had gone further with the idea that, uh, that Kirk was a dad and that he had David. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, he wasn't introduced as a child. In fact, uh, you know, it's somewhat, ambiguous as to how much Kirk knew about David as he grew up. You know, it seems he did know something because he does say, you wanted me to stay away, so I did. Uh, so mm-hmm. it does see, seem like he knew about him, but then they ended up killing off the character. Uh, right. And, they, you know, they added him as a 20-something-year-old, uh, and I kind of liked the dynamic that I ultimately saw there, and I, I think I would have enjoyed seeing that developed further. I don't know if I would have wanted to see it in movies, but I think I might have enjoyed if we had a little bit of time in possibly Star Trek novels or whatever, where we got to see what the dynamic was between those characters. Yeah, I, I and how, I how Kirk dealt with being a father. Yeah, for characters like Kirk, who are you know these sort of swashbuckling leading man, ladies man <laughs> sort of characters, um, you know, kids cramp that style, and then when those kids grow up, they tend to call you on your stuff more than a lot of other people would because they have license to do that because they're your child. So um, I think, you know, adult children of those sort of characters do, you know, can make for really good, um, some really good juice and interaction there. Um, and we could have had some, some good, I, I think we could have had some good uh, interaction between them, you know, with, with David having maybe a certain amount of not resentment, because I think he came to grips with his relationship with Kirk at the end of Star Trek Two, but maybe, you know, like a need to develop a relationship with his father because he never had that before. Right. And yeah. I think it, it could have made for an interesting dynamic and, 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 and in some interesting, uh, com- you know, some just in- interesting character moments between the two. Yeah, I think there, there, there can be a lot of juice in that. The, 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 the father having to come to grips with the fact that he is a father, which requires... A sort of a certain sort of growing up that you don't have to have when you are the swashbuckling leading man character. You know what I mean? Uh, you can sort of be have a little bit of the Peter Pan syndrome. You're always the young one going out and having the cool adventures, um, and that that rubs up against things when you've got got a grown son there. And and the and it's just compelling. It's a very compelling story of the the child that grows up and realizes that their parents are human beings too. And which can be humbling, and uh, you, you 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 have to you change your perspective about them and about yourself and all that stuff. There, there, there's a lot of good story juice to be had in those kind of stories. So an, another good Spock moment or Spock character, I thought, and it, you know these moments that I'm mentioning here uh, are largely done very quickly. Mm-hmm. And what I like about it is if you're not if you if you are a newbie uh, or if you're not too familiar with the uh, characters, or even if you are familiar with them, but you're looking more for the science fiction action, furtherance of the plot kind of thing, they don't belabor the, these moments. The moment with Amanda, you know, that whole scene is you know, maybe a minute and a half long. Uh, right. Another scene 
of a similar nature, in my opinion, uh, and it goes by pretty quickly, but I think it, it carries some weight to it, is when McCoy comes over to Spock on the ship and he wants to talk philosophy with him, having, <laughs> you know, the knowledge that, that Spock had died and, and was resurrected. And mm-hmm. Spock basically just being like, well, you know, we don't have a similar frame of reference. I, I, I can't really talk to you about this. And, and just McCoy's frustration over that. Uh, yeah, you mean, you I, I mean, just think it's you mean a perfect have, scene. Yeah. You mean I have to die to have a conversation with you about this? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, you, you're right. The um, One of the things that makes this movie, to me, so rich are those, you know, are the... <clears throat> the moments of warmth and sometimes humor and they tend to be very short they don't they never they never try to milk it you know they uh i think say the writers and and nimoy as the director they sort of knew when they got what they needed to get and then they move on realizing that that moment is going to stay with the audience uh and 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 they're going to carry that through the movie and they'll always see spock in terms of that guy who can't articulate how he feels to his mother and and um and doesn't know how to react to mccoy and uh um i i just think that you you know it, it takes a great amount of restraint uh, as a writer to to know uh, or as a director in the movie to, to to know when you've when you've done enough because it, it's it can be so fun to play around with that dialogue and have it go on three or four lines too many it's like you know beating the <laughs> beating the thing to death they, yeah. it's, it's so many parts of this movie are just done with a wonderfully deft and light touch, um, which is almost always better for comedy, at least for me. Um, I don't, I don't like it to be, ho, ho, isn't that so very funny, you know? Um, and in case just... you didn't see it, I'm going to do it again. Exactly. <laughs> but, uh, okay. So I'm sorry. I got distracted for a second. That's um, right. so, so the, the, they land in, in current day, 1986 United States, uh, in San Francisco, and I, you know, being a New Yorker and never having been to San Francisco, uh, I, do, I do feel that that's something missing, but uh, I, I, that I would like to remedy at some point in my life. But uh, <laughs> it really does feel authentic. Uh, you really mm-hmm. feel like you're getting, you know, that atmosphere, the correct atmosphere from it. And I don't know if it was all filmed in San Francisco or if this was, you know, a soundstage in Toronto that they made look like. Uh, they were in San Francisco, but it certainly feels like San Francisco to me. Yeah, I did. Uh, I did read that. That's uh, that it is. It's uh, th- this film was uh, largely filmed on location, and it was very atypical for for any Star Trek movies. Um, so they did a lot of that filming on the streets of San Francisco, using sort of you know hidden cameras and that sort of thing. Although the the article that I read on this did hasten to add that the um, by and large the people that were peopling the streets as <laughs> as our starfleet crew are wandering around on the sidewalks but when they're interacting with people those are you know those are actors they, they aren't just uh improving with a bunch of pedestrians going by although i'm sure a lot of the background people were just you know just the pedestrians on the street then so um so you're right to to um to sense that this was it felt very much of that place in that time because it was it was uh it was filmed right there on the streets and then you know we get as, as they're trying to uh, effect, effectively take, you know, get the MacGuffins that they've set up, and they've set up a few of them because they need the whales. They also mm-hmm. need to re-energize their uh, the ship because the uh, dilithium crystals have uncrystallized. Because uh, they're those darn Klingon dilithium crystals. Yes, exactly. <laughs> they're not good. They're not good Federation 
Penitive crystals. Scotty is always making sure to point out how how bad the Klingon technology is. <laughs> so they have that, and they also have to create tanks for the whales. Right. In in Justice Society of America fashion, they've broken it off into three separate missions <laughs> that they have to uh, accomplish. Just so, just one more reason that I like this movie so much. It's just like a Justice League comic. <laughs> yeah, it, it really is. I mean that that's that's a tried and true method that they used in mm-hmm. those comics time and time again. Uh, yep. And and it works beautifully because mm-hmm. we have our different stories and and every one of them has its fish out of water aspect. Right. Uh, and and there's there's a lot of you know a lot of humor. Uh, and some of it is obvious and some of it is a little bit more subtle. Most of it is kind of obvious, but and, and most of it falls on the, the actors in a mm-hmm. way that you're going to laugh and not just roll your eyes. Right. Uh, but I do think they successfully do it. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think that, you know, they, they play bewildered. They play, uh, you know, just, just they, they never feel like they're joking. Mm-hmm. They're very earnest about it all. Yes. So <laughs> I, I really enjoy that aspect very, very much. I can't mm-hmm. understand. Because uh, I think that is the aspect that, the general public and the non Star Trek and non someone they're sitting there watching it. I think because it's played so well, they get a kick out. It's not that you have to be these character uh, particular series in order. Yeah, I think that that uh, Nimoy and the writers had had faith in these characters and the um, the chemistry between them. Um, and if you were a big fan of the, the the series already, then that gives you additional you know context and uh, additional depths of understanding about what's going on with these references they're making amongst themselves. But, but you don't need that. Uh, if, you, if you're seeing this for the first time, you get a sense that these are people that have long and rich histories with each other and a genuine respect and affection for each other. And they're, you know, moments of uh, exasperation with each other and that stuff as well. So they just, they just come across as people as, as interesting people doing an interesting thing or trying to do an interesting thing. And, uh, I mean, that's, if you can get those broad strokes down, you've got a pretty good movie, uh, uh, recipe. We have the, the probably one of the most famous scenes in the movie as they're riding on the bus, and uh, <laughs> there's the punk rocker with the radio blaring "I I hate you," uh, mm-hmm. and and uh, Spock gives him the nerve pinch to the uh, delight of the uh, the rest of the of the rest of the uh, bus riders. Yeah, they break out a round of applause and everything. <laughs> and I, I I wonder, like you know, that that's a little kind of a little over the top because I'm wondering if that happened today. Uh, if, that, if that happened in reality, not even today, even back then, if that happened in reality, would nobody come over to, to see what happened to this guy that he dropped? <laughs> Basically, as far as they know, he dropped dead. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's that's a good point. That's a good point. Uh, you wonder how would people really have reacted, I guess. But uh, but I think what makes it work is that we've all it's sort of like wish fulfillment. We've all probably been in one of, we've been on a subway in New York. We've been on a bus in our hometown or whatever. Just been a crowd and somebody is playing music loud, talking loud on a cell phone and not caring that they're inflicting their half of a conversation on everybody else. And uh, we all wish, boy, I just wish that person would pipe down, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh so uh, basically, Spock is doing something we all wish we had the license and the ability to do, and and not have any consequences <laughs> other than getting a round of applause. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely. Or, or you know, you you all. I I think we've probably every one of us who drives has probably had the experience of being on the road and somebody driving like a maniac near you, and you just think, wouldn't it be just poetic justice if half a mile from here I I, I drive and I see he's being pulled over by the cops? Oh, yeah, exactly. Kind of 
exactly the same kind of thing and uh just so and, and obviously that moment didn't need to be in this movie for any plot reason whatsoever right i mean it's 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 purely a little aside but uh but again like you and and, and as you said before that whole scene takes you know what a minute a minute and a half but it just sort of you know humanizes <laughs> even our vulcan character it just humanizes these characters and, and makes makes people in the audience say uh, I think warm to them, you know, and, and uh, uh, that, that sense of connection uh, as a storyteller myself, uh, anytime somebody seems to respond to the characters that I'm creating with that um, sense of connection, I, I, I just feel it, it just doesn't get any better than that. And if you make that connection as a storyteller with a reader or a viewer, um, they sort of become putty in your hands to an extent. You know, they, uh, like I said, I think they will forgive a lot of stuff if, if, if they care about the characters that you're that you're taking them on a journey with, and uh, and we certainly care about these characters in Star Trek. Yeah, I totally agree with. You. So we get our one significant new character uh, is Jillian Taylor. Mm-hmm. It's funny when the first time I watched this, as I was watching mm-hmm. the movie, this is like you know this is my first impression. This is mm-hmm. in 1986. I'm in the movie theater and I'm thinking this uh, that she seemed very two dimensional. That all she had was this love of whales, you know. And then you see her truck and she's got like I love whales on the bumper sticker. I mean, it, it just seemed like so over the top uh, <laughs> that at first I didn't care for her characterization. But as the movie went on. I did like her more and more. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still, th- I still felt like you needed to give her a little bit more, three, a little bit more rounded personality. But it did seem a little too focused on that. But there are people out there who are very single-minded, and and I guess that's what we were dealing with here. Uh, and I really, really respected the fact that they did not make her. Yeah, me too. Um, I, I I do hear what you're saying. They 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 don't they, they don't get to explore, you know much about her and a little bit more of that would have enriched the character a lot i mean um the the acting i'm blanking on the name of the actress uh, Catherine um, hicks yes but i thought she did a great job of again humanizing the character just with her expressions her you know her, her inflections and the fact that she says do you guys like italian <laughs> yeah so, oh i um, love that that the, yeah. the, the timing on that it's almost like abbott and costello it really was yeah but um so i i, I did i I did appreciate her character and, and uh, I certainly related to the passion she had for something, you know, for her, it was whales. Um, for me, it's comics, but, um, but yeah, had they had uh, just a little bit more to show some other aspect of her, you know, having a five second conversation with a, a girlfriend or uh, a, a brief scene where she's tossing the keys down on the table as she enters her own home or whatever it might be just 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 something would have been great i imagine it's just something where they just didn't really have room to accommodate that in the script um but yeah regardless the fact that she um i love the fact that at the uh spoilers but at the end of the movie it's it's almost like she gives kirk the kiss off you know yeah uh, he, uh i don't have your says, number <laughs> yeah yeah, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, she, you know, basically, she says, "Don't call me, I'll call you." And, and she, that line about you've got your ship, I've got mine, and she goes off to do what? You know, look after the whales, of course. And uh, uh, she's, uh, I think she's she's great in that role. She she's compassionate. She 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 cares for uh, she cares for these people as she, she comes to care for them, and and uh, you and can she's see very that likable. Yeah, she's very likable, and uh, um, with without just you know with. You know, and I think that I think I heard that uh, that uh, Shatner, you know, insisted that there be, there be a love interest in the movie for him. So in a way, they wrote in somebody there that 
maybe he thought of her as a love interest. I never saw her that way. <laughs> I saw her just being, um, you know, the, the the scientist who's who's helping them to do the right thing and sort of rescuing them and, and assisting them and giving them the perspective that they need, the information that they need to, to make this story work. Um, uh, I, I just uh, I, I think she's a great high point in this story, yeah. Now, I mean, Star Trek is well-known for being just a touch heavy-handed sometimes with their social uh, messages. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, they don't disguise them well, and I don't think that they really made any effort to disguise. And and I'm, I, I was kind of okay with that. I don't, I don't even want to make it sound like a criticism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I mean, the her, her own speech talking about the short-sighted people, the whole plot with the fact that it's extinct, right. uh, the films that they showed a lecture, which are mm-hmm. at times kind of graphic, yeah. uh, showing them skinning the whales, uh, and, and very upsetting, and I think they serve the purpose that you'd want them to serve if you're making this movie, that you see this and you're outraged. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I, you know, it, it is a good message that, you know, that you need to be more conscious of the environment and, 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 and you know, live in a way where you're prolonging the environment and you're not, you know, just depleting it. Uh, right. And whether that be a species or, you know, different natural uh, resources, uh so, I, you know, I, I think that's all really, really well done. And I think it's, you know, in many ways, it's classic Star Trek. Yeah. And and I think what makes it, to me, particularly effective in this movie is it's it's like you said, they don't go out of their way to disguise it, but they don't they don't lean into it too heavy, I don't think. And they, they leaven it with so many moments of just humor and uh, um, good, you know, good antics uh, and stuff going on. Um, that uh, that the that the proportions feel good enough to work well for me. There's a couple of places where that okay, they probably didn't need to you know didn't need to be quite as on the nose as they did there, but um, but it never reaches the point of it seeming sort of strident or you know overly insistent. So uh, and again, that's another one of those um, another one of those lines you have to walk a very fine line to ensure that the the idea, you know, the ideas come across in a way that hopefully, like you were just saying, will will be effective and make people feel that way and come across as ins- inspiration to, you know, inspire us to make better choices or whatever without getting to the point where you feel like you're just being lectured and shamed. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to feel like you're there to watch a documentary. Exactly, uh, yeah. But yeah. but I think, you know, you you get the message and then you move on. And I think they pretty much do that. Again, it is a little strong at points. You know, some of the <laughs> footage is, it, it's troubling, uh, to be totally honest. I, I, like I said, yeah. that, that one scene where they're skinning the whale, uh, mm-hmm. I, I, every time I've watched the movie, my eye is really, really drawn to it. Uh, it you can't, it, it is absolutely riveting. You're absolutely right. And yeah. and, and, it, and it every time it, it fills me just a little uncomfortable. Let's, mm-hmm. let's leave it at that. Without being, again, without being so sort of the top that it, but just, right. it's trouble. I, I think it's, it's always good when they can put in a, a message and not have it ruin the enjoyment, of, but still mm-hmm. have the message. Right. Moving on, uh, definitely more lighthearted. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Spock jumps into the into the tank and he's swimming with the whales. Uh, the only thing about that is I'm thinking, do they have no security at this place? <laughs> yeah, even when he true. goes in, she goes over and gets him out, and there's not like a security guard next to him escorting him out or anything. Right. Yeah. Uh, I I, uh, I I think that it's possible that somebody maybe back then especially might have been able to jump into the tank, but immediately somebody surely would have dove in after to fish them out or something. You've got to think, but of course it, how can you, how can you uh, do anything that would 
prevent us from seeing that great scene when he's swimming around and doing the mind meld with the whale. That's just that's just spectacular. They are not the hell your whales. I love you know how he's trying to interject with the uh, the expletives. Exactly. Yeah, it, it was great. Um, so yeah, but that, that's uh, that's I don't know. It's it's that scene could be seen as being outlandish or corny, but for me, it's kind of magical in some way because <laughs> that they actually did that, and of course. The fact that it was Spock doing it, um, who would just be, well, this is the logical thing that I need to do now to get some more information. So, of course, I'm just going to do it. And (laughs) it was so in keeping with him being him. And Kirk's, you know, chagrin looks in the crowd when he sees (laughs) Spock swimming around in the whale. And apparently nobody else sees it for a while. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the, the, the one woman says, "What's that? Maybe you know, maybe that's something because that man in there." <laughs> like she says it so casually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's a time like that when you, when I realize we're really watching a comedy here in in a lot of ways. You know, it's it's not not an Abbott and Costello comedy, but it's it's there's a lot of humor in this movie for sure. Yeah, oh, definitely. Uh, and, and along those lines, with the humor, uh, as they're talking, Spock's inability to understand metaphor. <laughs> and, and just, you know, being confused because he's taking things so literally. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really felt to me like something that they've built upon. And uh, at least in the first Guardians of the Galaxy with Drax, that uh, his inability to, uh, to to perceive, you know, expressions and things and, and understand that they're not, you know, he take, took everything so literally. Uh, I, I feel like that's that's kind of a similar thing that they had done before the Marvel movies did it. Uh, and and, and it, it's, again, it was just fun. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I got to say that um, I, I've, I've, I've um, discovered this in myself. I'll, I'll write something uh, for my own comic and then either I will notice later or somebody else will point out to me um, that, oh, that's sort of like such and such, sometimes it's from Star Trek or something else, and I say, oh my gosh, that must be where I got that from. I don't have any conscious memory of that, of, you know, lifting it or swiping it or whatever you want to say. But, you know, when you see some of these um, these movies or comics or whatever it is, um, it just goes deep into your brain mm-hmm. <laughs> to the point where it's no longer part of your... It just it's it becomes part of your sense of humor or part of your vocabulary or whatever, and uh, um, and it would just come out um, unconsciously. I don't know if that's how they came up with <laughs> with that that taking Guardians of the Galaxy or not, but uh, uh, something that's been around as long and as affectionately remembered and 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 followed as Star Trek uh, has probably sparked a lot of that sort of stuff. Now, purely a gratuitous uh, Bob Jillian's coworker. Mm-hmm. Every time I see him, I think Monty. You know, it, it, I can see that. Yeah, similar face, right? Yeah, yeah I, it just that's it, it, even his voice to me sounded similar. So that's that's who I think of. Mm-hmm. And and it's probably young enough to sing. Who's the Hall? Yeah, they probably are. Yeah, and I guess though that you know when we were talking about how it would be nice to have seen um, seen a little bit more three dimensionality in her character, I, I'm sure that's you know putting her her, her colleague there uh, and giving just a, just a couple of moments of interaction between the two of them was perhaps trying to do that but of course it was within the, it was in the context you know within the context of her working with whales so it didn't really expand her uh dimensionally too much so yeah so now there's the scene where they go the factory transparent uh I, i've always i was always amazed at how quickly mr scott can <laughs> that's right you wouldn't yeah. think he'd have much reason for that to have that skill yeah, in they, his century. They're just, putting, they're just pushing all those buttons on the screens in the 23rd century. Yeah, so I mean, everything is touchscreen. What's with the keyboard? Or, or audio. So, and he's fly, yeah. his fingers are flying on that thing. 
<laughs> they are, yeah. Uh, yeah, again, uh, when he doesn't even know how to use a mouse, so, uh, he <laughs> thinks it's a microphone. So, but, and, yet he's, and yet he's very fluent with keyboards. So it's, but it's, again, it's another it's thing, though, the where they've kind of produced now yeah. Google and Alexa and all of this stuff, you know, or Siri. There's a mm-hmm. lot of voice-activated things that did not exist in 19. You know, they, they did see it coming. Yeah, I was I was thinking about that watching the movie that uh, you know some some of the best science fiction things do really really do introduce uh, or, or you know set the vision for things that then the uh, the the real world scientists <laughs> and uh, and inventors and visionaries do you know manifest in reality. So uh, uh, Star Trek is you know, following a, a long uh, distinguished line of science fiction concepts in that regard. I have to confess here my own note. I should just pass it and move on, but I'm trying to figure out what it is I meant when I wrote "flown in a 747." Was it was it that they took the whales from the location of the 747? Oh, yeah, that's right. uh, To to get them up to Alaska. That's right. And that's that's that confused me a little bit because they had to make so many arrangements so that they could bring them on a starship, but you'd be able to fly them on a 747, which just seemed to be like that just didn't seem right. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. That's a good. Maybe they have a, sh- a 747 especially decked out to accommodate ship flying whales around. I don't know. I don't know. And I don't know what was the standard back in 1986 for that sort of thing. No, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how they transported whales back then or how they would do it now, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah. I just kind of always pictured like a giant tanker truck. But I, yeah. I don't know if that's – I have no idea if that's real. Uh, yeah. We get to the scene with uh, Chekhov and Uhura trying to get the nuclear energy – and mm-hmm. it really made sense to me on a uh, whether or not it's real. Again, the reality I don't know, but it made sense to me in my limited civic knowledge that the nuclear energy on the uh, ship would interfere with their ability to track uh, the two of them and to transport them off. Yeah, that was a good bit of uh, that was a good bit of uh, uh, a good, good bit of writing to to give that added con uh, that added complication, which uh, you know gave us a, gave us a dilemma to solve. Nice, nice, clever writing. They did. They saw an opportunity and took advantage of it. You know. Right, and then we we have uh, again. I, I just think terrifically written and executed comic scene when he's being interrogated. Uh, and it's, it's almost almost like a who's on first type of dialogue yeah. going on. And, right, and exactly. It, it really did require some pretty good uh, comic timing by Taconig, and and mm-hmm. I thought he he pulled it off really. Well. Yeah, me too. And then, they, of course, they had they had the Russian had to be the one who's running around on the ship, being pursued by the uh, by, by the crew. It's like something out of a James Bond movie or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then it's just you know that. And then the uh, again the new interferes with his phaser ability, so he can't stun mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's right. Yeah. And so then we we move on, and Jillian, now that the whales have been removed, is in a panic, and she believes now what's going on, so she goes to the park to try and make contact with Kirk and Spock, and she runs into the cloaked ship, and the thing about that that gets me is, you run into a ship like that, you're going to be messed up. <laughs> you know? yeah, Unless it's they, padded, you're, you're, you're going to get, you know, really be hurt. Yeah, they just had to run up and sort of fall backwards, so uh, <laughs> they, they, you know, today they probably would have done some cgi thing and uh uh and maybe got him more banged up too yeah um, i, so I that, think the way i the they way didn't, i they didn't sell that moment quite right did they <laughs> but the, well the way i kind of did it in my mind canon is that they have some type of a force field, and that's what oh. she hit into and that that wouldn't be like running into solid steel 
It would well, that's be a very just a force. Yeah, feel. that's a that's a kind interpretation, and I'm going to go with it. I, I like that. <laughs> Uh, they go into the hospital. They have to rescue Chekhov, and I really, I, I just love the whole scene. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the the woman with the kidney. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The fact that they that you know the science has advanced to the point where they can uh, fix his subdural hematoma. You know, with with a couple of minutes. You know, with with his uh, I, I don't know if it's his tricorder or something else that he puts on him. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the only thing about it was. You know, in five minutes, they already already know that this woman grew a new kidney. How did you know? Did they get an MRI of her, a sonogram? What did they do? How did they know she grew a new kidney? <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, <laughs> just pop a couple of pills, boom, there's that kidney, and uh, maybe and we she's, already I know, know it. Sorry, and, and we already know it. Like she, you know, she's she's walking on. Doctor gave me a pill, and I grew a new kidney. <laughs> so she already knows it. <laughs> Yeah, well, that that whole scene in the hospital is, you know, the most is probably the broadest, most, uh, you know, antic slapsticky comedy uh, of of the whole movie. We've sort of been ramping up to that point or something like that, and uh, I think that they they laid enough groundwork for the, the the sort of rules we're playing by in this movie as far as the you know the humor and stuff that that it that it that it works fine. It didn't stick out at all, even though they're <laughs> winning <laughs> winning poor Chekhov around on that uh, on that gurney through the hallways and stuff. It, it it really is like something out of a thirties slapstick comedy. Well in, um, in some ways it makes me think of Yul Bergham, where he didn't feel that the ending was entirely plausible. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, with with Rob with the uh, <laughs> with, with the bullet piercing the oxygen tank and blowing up the shark. Oh right. Uh, but what what he said was if the audience is still with me at this point, I can sell it. Yes. Yeah. Like if, you know, so, so it's almost like if you've been along for the ride this long, now we can start to broaden the comedy a little mm-hmm. because we've pulled the audience in. With- right. Yeah. Whereas if I you think, started yeah, the movie this broad on the comedy, it probably. Right. Yeah. You do have to earn it and, and you can't abuse it. You know, you can't take it too far, but you can say, well, I bet I can push them this far, bring them along, pull them along with me this far. But probably not any farther. <laughs> yeah, and I think they made very good judgment on how far. Yeah, I do. Like I said, I think there was so much there was there was uh, there was enough discipline and restraint to know when they had you know when they'd given given enough or in this case maybe asked of the audience enough and said okay now we now we have to we have to leave that right there we don't go any farther in this direction. But I, I felt this movie had just tons of of instances of that in the the interpersonal moments and the slapstick moments and. Uh, and all that stuff where they just they just knew how much to give and uh, and knew knew when to stop. So I think Jilly, when when we first are in, she the one who giving us him. Mm-hmm. Now once she comes onto the ship, she kind of becomes the point of view character for us. Right. She takes our role. Now she's not giving us information; she's trying to get information. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I and I think that was really really well handled. I don't even know if they consciously planned it that way. I think that's the plays out. Uh, and I, I like as they as they're going on the rescue mission for the whales, they say put it on screen, and she's like, wait, how? How, where, how did you get this picture? And, it's right, like, yeah. and they just dismiss her. But mm-hmm. she's she's us at that point. Yes. And, and yeah. I, and the, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say that. Um, okay, I was just to say that you know, um, and that's the transition because at first they're going into her world. You know, they're they're in her they're in her setting. Um, so she knows the rules and 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 uh, 
how to drive a truck <laughs> and that mm-hmm. sort of stuff and how to order and where the Italian restaurants are. Uh, and then when she steps on that ship, she's out of her element. She's the fish out of water then. So, um, uh, and, and it's, it's always incredibly effective to, in, in a movie to do that, to have somebody who's sort of seeing it with the same eyes that we are. And then you can introduce them to the world and introduce the audience to the world in the same, in the same way. Yeah. It, it makes expositions. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, just at this point, we're kind of moving towards them. They rescue the whales. Then we have, you know, one last action scene. We come back to the 23rd century, and the tank won't open, so Kirk has to do his little Poseidon adventure uh, scene <laughs> and, and, and release the whales. And then mm-hmm. he comes out, and I think that last scene there, it's not the final scene of the movie, but that last scene there is, again, where Rosenman's uh, score plays really well because it's got that upbeat music to it and you just see the cr- the, the crew frolicking in the water uh, mm-hmm. and having fun including seeing Mr. Spock just kind of cl- you know horsing around with Kirk and smiling mm-hmm. yeah 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 it's, it's that that scene is if I'm not mistaken that's that's pretty much unique isn't it in the uh, that that level of just sort of like kids romping around together you don't you don't see that um, in any other Star Trek movie that I can think of. Um, you see them sometimes having pleasant times together, but this is like kids at play, splashing around in the water. It's uh, and honestly, I think that was kind of a bold choice to make. Um, you know, I, I think it's uh, you've got these action science fiction heroes, and here they're splashing around in the <laughs> in the San Francisco Bay, laughing and just having joy. It's uh, that's that can be a risky thing to do with characters that you want your audience to sort of take seriously. Yeah, well, I think I think it is a bold choice on their part, but I, as as we've said with many others, I think it comes across as very uh, mm-hmm. and and it really does seem to be real after after the tension, even though they the, the movie is relatively lighthearted, you know, the stakes were high. Absolutely, uh, yeah. And you know, then then they just went through a, a you know s- several levels of testing to get to where they finally are, and mm-hmm. now they finally accomplished their goal, and now you can just relax and and, right. and kind of you know be yourself and have a good time for a little. Yeah, so I, exactly. I think it plays really really well, and I think the audience kind of comes along for that ride. Right. And then we wrap up with you know the, the I guess trial of the crew and. Spurk, Spurk, Kirk being, uh, you know, put back to the role of captain and them getting the Enterprise and taking off. And mm-hmm. uh, overall, as far as I'm concerned, just an utterly satisfying trip. Yeah, I, I agree. As I as I say, I, uh, I remember this movie so fondly from when I first saw it in the theater. And that's that's usually a pretty good indication that even if I may not remember, you know, I had to go back and rewatch it fairly recently because I had not seen it in years. But I, my memories of it were very fond ones. And when I went back and I saw it, I said, this is why I liked that movie then. And that's why I still like it just as much today. And I think it's aged very well, exactly as just saying. Yeah. I don't, yeah, I, don't I don't watch it and think, oh, well, it's a product of its time. It, it holds up today. It really does, surprisingly. So, and you know, um, especially because a lot of movies that are made that do have, well, the movie does, you know, it it does have this message of environmental concern and that sort of stuff. But it's, as we've said before, it's it's that move that particular message is made within the the context of a fun action adventure story. It's not oversold. Um, But a lot of those sort of movies that that do veer towards the point where they're sort of preachy or heavy handed, they don't age well at all. So this one, uh, that's probably the, the test of how well they did that, is that you can still watch this movie today, and it doesn't feel dated, I don't think, at all. 
Now, all that said, are you now familiar with the Joyce scale? Have you, have you uh, listened yeah, to did. enough to familiarize yourself with it? <laughs> yes, yes, I am. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you the pivotal question of every episode of this show is, is it yours? Well, for me, this one is, yeah. I just have such warm affection for it. And, well, um, you know, as we've said, there are little, little little things here and there that we might quibble with, little moments here and there, so I wouldn't necessarily call this a quote-unquote flawless movie, but that's not what makes a movie great to me, is it, you know, does, does it deliver what it sets out to deliver? And 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 it, and this one hits me, you know, a bullseye on that. Yeah, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna pretty much agree. That. And uh, one of the things that I've talked about is, you know, on the Jaws scale, mm-hmm. and we always I always have to say that I found it. Uh, <laughs> there's there's only four rankings you could give. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to to try and sit here and say, well, in order to give it a top ranking, it has to be the best movie of all time. Well, right. then there's an awful lot of movies that aren't are you know <laughs> that aren't gonna fit into that. Uh, not every movie that's ranked yours is totally equal. I mean, you would have to rank them within that category. Mm-hmm. So this is probably on the lower level as far as I'm right. concerned. It's not, you know, it's not an all-time classic uh, that movie such as yours is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it really does succeed on pretty much all levels. I don't really, except for some really, really minor nitpicks that we've talked about over this episode, uh, I don't really see any flaws in the movie. And the ones we see have been pretty much nitpicks. Mm-hmm. So, and, and it holds up to repeated viewings. There's good quotable material in it. I happen to be a fan of the score. Uh, I am a big fan of the acting. I'm a big fan of the writer, the character moments. There's really nothing in this movie that I can point to and say, well, on this level it fails. Right, uh, I agree. The with only that. Yeah. thing that I might say or qualify it with is there are people out there that this probably just isn't their style of, uh, right. and for them it may not rank as highly. But other mm-hmm. than that, I, you know, I don't really, I, I'm hard pressed to give you any reason to to rank it any. I, I'm right there with you. <laughs> So now I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. Uh, first, I'm going to thank you again for coming on and talking to me. This has been an absolute pleasure. Great. Uh, I'm going to ask you when I do post this, I'm going to be putting a link on Facebook that, you know, that it's out there as I do with every episode. But I'm going to ask that when I do on the Is It Yours, I have an Is It Yours Facebook page. On that page and on the page for Back to the Bins, which is my comic book, uh, if you could put links for the Kickstarter thing for Trekker. Oh, I'd be happy to do that. Sure. Because I, I want to, you know, anybody who listens to this and is interested in it, in it, I, I want them to have access to be, uh, and I think that's the easiest way to get it. Sounds great. So thanks again for coming on, Ron. This has been, again, it's been a pleasure. Paul, it's been great. I've, I've enjoyed every minute of it. <laughs> I look and, forward uh, to doing it again soon. Yes, we'll definitely make a point of doing it again soon. I have uh, Darren and Ruth to thank for uh, getting us together. I, I will pass along those thanks from me as well. <laughs> Take care, and thank you everybody for listening. Bye-bye. to the whales. 283 degrees, 15.2 kilometers. Everybody remember where we parked. Watch, watch where you're going, you dumbass! Oh, double dumbass on you! The rest of you break up. You look like a cadet review. Does it mean exact change? 
Yes, under U.S. government. Now we need directions. Excuse me, sir. Can you direct me to the naval base in Alameda? It's where they keep the nuclear vessels. Nuclear vessels. signal? Could they be part of the mating ritual? Or is it pure communication beyond our comprehension? Frankly, we just don't know yet. Maybe he's singing to that man. What the hell? I don't know what this is all about. But I want you guys out of here right now, or I call the cops. I assure you that won't be necessary. We're only trying to help. The hell you were, Buster. Your friend was messing up my tanks and messing up my whales. They like you very much, but they are not the hell your whales. I, I suppose they've told you that, huh? The hell they did. There she is, from the Institute. If we play our cards right, we may be able to find out when those whales are leaving. How will playing cards help? Well, if it isn't Robin Hood and Friar Tuck. Where you fellas heading? Back to San Francisco. Came all the way down here just to jump in and swim with the kiddies, huh? Very little point in my trying to explain. Well, yeah, I'll buy that. What about him? Him? He's harmless. Back in the 60s, he was part of the free speech movement at Berkeley. I think he did a little too much LDS. LDS? Mm. You're not one of those guys from the military, are you? Trying to teach whales to retrieve torpedoes or some dipshit stuff like that? No, ma'am, no dipshit. Well, good. That's one thing I would have let you off right here. Gracie is pregnant. I have a hunch that we'd all be a lot happier discussing this over dinner. What do you say? You guys like Italian? No. Yes. Yes. No. no. Yes. No. Yes. I love Italian. And so do you. Yes. Computer? Computer? Ah. Hello, computer. 
Just use the keyboard. The keyboard? How quaint. Who are you? Who do you think I am? Don't tell me. You're from outer space. No, I'm from Iowa. I only work in outer space. Mander Pavel Chekhov, Starfleet, United Federation of Planets. All right, Commander. Is there anything you want to tell us? What's the matter with you? Kidney dialysis. Dialysis? My God, what is this, the Dark Ages? Here, do you swallow that? And if you have any problems, just call me. Damn it, do you want an acute case on your hands? This woman has immediate postprandial upper abdominal distension. Oh. 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 Get out of the way. Get out of the way. What did you say she's got? Cramps. Fully functional. Fully functional. Make a helmet at home.